Hi everybody, Jeff Cooper here from Classic Christian Rock Radio, and we're on the Time Machine Show. Today our guest is David Sefiro, and uh, he's from Blood Good Fame, of course, and we're going to talk about that and his solo career and what he's doing now. So, hi David, good morning. Good morning. Well, it's morning, the show runs in the morning and evening, so it's morning somewhere, that's what they say. Um, (laughs) What age did you start in music? Um... I started in about sixth grade, so I think I was, I don't know, I think like 12 years old or something like that, maybe 13 or something, um, if I got the numbers right. But um, I, I went to um, a school in Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, I, my family moved up there um, during the pipeline, and my dad was a consultant. He was in the space program working with Boeing, but uh, Boeing was going through some changes in the 70s, and instead of waiting around to get laid off, he said, yeah, let's go to Alaska, so... We all moved up to Fairbanks, Alaska, and I was going to Joy School, which is a round school. Mm-hmm. It really is round. The whole thing's <laughs> round. You can walk down the hallway, and you'll get back to the same place. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a circle. <laughs> and uh, there's a guy there um, by the name of Maverick who became one of my best friends, and he played guitar, and and so he got me into it, and um, I started playing right about then, you know? Wow. Yeah. Okay, so... Tell us a little bit more about uh, life growing up, et cetera, your testimony maybe in there, and um, <clears throat> your influence in life and music. Yeah, um, you know, growing growing up in Alaska was, I mean, I was born and raised in Seattle, yeah. Washington, but, um, you know, like I said, when I, when I was in fifth grade, we moved up, uh, well, the beginning of sixth grade, I should say, we moved up to Fairbanks, and, um, you know, it was that was a big, big difference from Seattle, Washington. I mean, you know, the winters, the coldest it ever got <laughs> that when I was there was 60 below. And that's not with any wind. That's not a chill factor. I mean, that's no wind, 60 below. Yeah. And at that point, they actually closed the schools. Um, but, you know, if it's 40 below, the schools are still open, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I had moose running around in my backyard. And <laughs> there's snow. We had snow machines and snowmobiles and just all kinds of stuff going on. So it was a big change from uh, the Northwest, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess it, it still would be considered kind of the Northwest, mm-hmm. Northern West, yeah. <laughs> right? Alaska. Which, by the way, but, people, uh, people thinking, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Um, sorry, yeah. Alaska was rough, too. I mean, a lot of my uh, friends that I knew up there during that time, they're all, they've all passed, you know, either suicide or murder or accidents, just crazy stuff. It's a oh. rough... It's a rough area. It yeah. really is rough. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I really enjoyed doing that and growing up there. But um, and that was right about the time of the um, in the seventies of the Jesus movement. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar just come out, and a lot of young people were giving their hearts in, uh, to Christ. And my brother Michael mm-hmm. um, did just that. He he gave his heart to Christ, and and um, I remember one time I was upstairs and there was a back office or den as my parents would call it hmm. and um i came walking in looking for something and the lights are out and i turn on the lights and he's in there praying because i'm in here praying Whoa. he goes get out <laughs> like, oh, so, sorry you know he was older he's older than me by by five years <clears throat> yeah and um <laughs> and then about uh probably just a few minutes later he came out and says hey you, you want to pray with me you know and hmm. i said Sure. So I gave my heart to Christ when I was fourteen, okay. and uh, and you know there wasn't. I didn't really have much fellowship, and um, didn't have a church per se. Um, no accountability to a pastor or anything. So you know I waffled, and you know I I did give my heart to Christ, but and I 
believe in God even before that, though, because of mm-hmm. just my upbringing, I think, or I don't know. There's a, that's a long story, probably too long to go into. <laughs> but uh, And then later, probably, you know, when I was uh, about 19, um, I had moved back down to Washington and um, was with my uh, girlfriend, who's now my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, she we were actually uh, Maverick and I were writing a song and about the end of the world type thing, you know. And so I said, well, we can read up on this in Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, you know. And I said, so I just looked at it a little bit, and Susan read through the whole thing that night. Mm. And she goes, have you read this? I'm like, well, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she read through the whole thing, and then she goes, you have to check this out. So she read it again to me yeah. out loud. Yeah. And at the end of that, we um, we gave our heart to Christ. Amen. You know, for me, it was, it was a bit of a rededication, of course, you yes. know. But um, And um, we just knelt down by the bed, and we, you know, we actually wept. I mean, it was just mm. a very powerful, powerful yes. moment. And from that point on, there was still a bit of a, you know, up and down kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, her and I broke up, got back together, da, 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 da. but eventually we got grounded in a, a church called Calvary Fellowship, mm-hmm. uh, Wayne Taylor is the pastor of that church, and um, um, and then we really started to, you know, really grow and um, understand the Gospels and the Scriptures and that sort of thing, and um, it was just, it was great, you know, it was a pretty big change. Beautiful. What, um, what bands did you get involved in uh, early on? Tell us about your experience in bands. Yeah, I, um, as a guitar player, <laughs> I played mainly acoustic guitar. Yeah. Um, not much electric, and um, um, so, you know, I just learned stuff like Cat Stevens and The Beatles mm-hmm. and whatever songs, and, you know, just and made up my own songs and this sort of thing. Uh, but Maverick was playing electric guitar, so um, eventually I de- definitely moved over to electric as well, but he was in all the bands. He was kind of the best guitar player, and he was, you know, he was the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then... Um, you know, I moved from Fairbanks to Anchorage, and I jumped in a band. And I had a, I bought a Les Paul, and I jumped in a band called Blind Alice. Okay. And that was with um, Tony Sorochi, Jim Chase, and um, Bill Hale. Mm-hmm. And Bill Hale was a guitar player, and he was absolutely stunning. Hmm. And he was like only 14, and he's like one of the best guitar players I'd ever heard in my life. Yeah. Um, scary good. And, you know, so I learned a lot from him. And just, you know, and, just, and he was kind of, he was a little bit arrogant and he would basically ridicule you into perfection (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) challenge you and uh so i played in blind alice for um probably about a year or Mm -hmm. something like that and um it never really did too much and then um and then i you know again i eventually moved back down to seattle and that sort of thing and i jumped in a band called um and this is after um i had given my heart to christ and Mm -hmm. was following the lord um a band called crystal city rockers yes and um, that band um, did quite a bit. I mean, they toured around the country um, in a beat-up old bus that really deserved more of a mercy killing. Yeah. Than, you know, uh, but uh, and it was you know had all kinds of stories there. Again, yeah. too many to go into. That's for sure. Yeah. But we just we ministered to a lot of people, and uh, and towards the end of that, I was, in, I was in Crystal City for about three years, and towards the end of it, I remember we had played. Um, I can't remember exactly where. It might have been Canada. Um, but probably because we I saw you somewhere. <laughs> I saw you guys okay, somewhere. Okay, yeah, probably up here. Yeah, yeah. And so we uh, we were playing the show, and I think there's maybe some church or something. And, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think there was a church exactly, but anyway. Yeah. Um, there's probably about maybe twenty people there, and and 
no no problem, right? Mm-hmm. So then when we get done, we're loading up the gear, and all these kids are outside, man, these young people, just, I mean, hundreds and hundreds, and they're goofing around and playing. I'm thinking, none of these people came in to see the show. Mm. And I'm thinking, we're not reaching these people. Yeah. I'm not, at least not in, not right now. At least not these people, anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. People didn't see Crystal City, but, you know. Mm-hmm. So I um I just felt like I wanted to kind of move on and I uh, kind of made a vow that I wasn't going to jump into another band. So I quit the band. I was not going to jump into another band for a year or something. I made some stupid vow to myself <laughs> or whatever, which was broken because I um, um I you know connected with Michael Bloodgood yeah. and JT, and then we started to practice for this band, and so that all changed, and that was. That was for Bloodgood, and that was before Les Carlson was in the band. Okay. And so we were practicing all these heavy metal songs, <clears throat> covers, you yes. know, like Ronnie James Dio and all yeah. this stuff. And and I had I had some reservations about that, but um, anyway, eventually we found Les, and um, Les kind of came into the picture and says, you know, we have no business playing these songs. Let's write our own songs. What, what are we doing here, you know? And so that changed everything, and we yeah. started writing our own material. And um, our first show... Our first show that we ever did in Bloodgood was with uh, opening up for Striper. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I think it was either the Paramount or the Moores Theater. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. And then the second show we did was with Striper again, and mm-hmm. we, I think it was in Bellingham, yeah. and we opened up for him again. It was. And then after that, <laughs> yeah. our third show was with Daryl Mansfield, mm-hmm. and then he t- we had a demo that we had made by that time, and he took that demo down to Jimmy Kempner in California, and... Um, Jimmy signed us up to um, Frontline. Wow. And, so, and after three shows, we, we basically got a record deal. That's amazing. I, yeah, it was yeah. pretty extraordinary. I hadn't realized you had only been together that short a time. I, I saw you in Bellingham, and I believe I saw you again with Daryl. Um, and I think I met you guys. Believe it or not, I met you in the washroom, <laughs> and you were, oh, yeah. you, you were putting on your makeup. So I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember people coming in going, oh, oh, excuse us, and then they walk out again, not sure why guys would be putting on makeup. Then we realized, hey, that's the band tonight. <laughs> right, right. So was... Yeah, we used to put on, I mean, makeup-wise, I think people used to say, man, we used to use lipstick and all this stuff. We didn't. No, I, I just, never did. It was for the um, lights well, and we, everything, right? Yeah, we. Um, I did use a like a, like a, like a bliss text, if you will, um, on my lips just for chap lips and stuff like that but for the photo shoots it always made it look like i was wearing lipstick or something you know which i wasn't (laughs) we'd wear like a foundation yeah and then maybe just a little bit of an eyeliner so we could pop more because bloodgood was very theatrical and left came from a background of of um playing in theater and performing i mean he was uh, he was in hair and um that whole play so Mm -hmm. um bloodgood always had that kind of theater kind of background um spin to our music and performance yes and uh, some of us have seen that YouTube video, and it's pretty uh, animated. It's great. Um, where was that? Mm-hmm. Where was that shot again? And what was the story behind that? If it's the last one, I, if it's the one I sent you just recently, yes, it's that, that one, was yeah. recently. It was recently discovered, if you will, okay, um, by Dorn Reppert, um, who is uh, he used to be a, a label head. He signed Zion and did the band uh, The Reach, mm-hmm. which turned to into in reach right but before that they were the reach yeah um and dorn had shot the footage with three different cameras and angles and the sound was not too bad and the mm. sort of thing got the console yeah and what happened is um somebody stole the actual footage 
So I think it was a 1630 format, oh, which is like a big VHS is my guess. I don't think it was. Yeah. It could have been digital because they no. didn't have digital back then. Not like that. No. Well, they were just, they did, but they weren't, it wasn't, you know. It wasn't available. In not really. Not yeah. to the extent. No. It needed to be for that kind of application. <laughs> but um, yeah. so we had 1630 format, I think, and it, somebody ripped it off and took the, oh, all the footage. So he thought, oh, my goodness. It's huh. like, you know, he lost it all. And, and Dorn was really good. He brought us in at Pottstown, Pennsylvania. It was a good show and this sort of thing. Yeah. Well, oddly enough, at the end of that show, some kid before Dorn realized that this had been stolen, yeah. um, somebody came up to him and said, hey, you know, I really love this. And da, 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 da. I was really excited about it. He says, well, here, here's a VHS of the show. So he gives this kid this VHS. Hmm. And um, I think it was a kid. You yeah. know, I don't know how old he was. <laughs> and so then years later, as in, I think, of recent, okay, yeah. so yeah. like now. Yeah. This person reached out to Dorn and said, hey, I, I've got that VHS of the show. Would you be interested in having it back? And Dorn says, absolutely. So oh. he got this footage back. So it's just recently been posted. Mm -hmm. um, so it was the lost footage, and now, now it's um, re re recovered. And then Les Carlson um, recently, if I'm, uh, and this is hearsay because I wasn't in the conversation, but Les told me about yeah. it, just reached out to Dorn and said, hey, can we get that footage um, or a copy or whatever? Um, and Dorn said, absolutely. And yeah. so um, so that's kind of where we're standing on that. Yeah, and that was all Pottstown, Pennsylvania, that show. That's beautiful. Yeah, interesting show. Very good. If people get a chance to have a look at that, it's on the Bloodgood Facebook page and their web page, I believe. And um, I think you have it on your Facebook or your web page <clears throat> as well. And I've put it on the Classic Christian Rock Facebook page so people can look it up. Well worth looking at. It uh, brings back a lot of memories, I'll tell you. And a, I mean, yeah, a good lesson you, for man. bands today. If you want to see what a band should be doing on stage, have a look at that. Yeah, I, thank you for thank you for Absolutely. that. Absolutely, uh, kind word, kind words. Uh, you know, um, uh, I was going to say something about that. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah this this movie in 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 um, in the trenches. Yes. Okay, that movie I got to work on with Paul Bloodgood. Mm -hmm. for, we worked on that. My take on that i mean my part was probably about i think i was on that for seven to eight months working <laughs> on that movie and i did all the sound yeah, yeah all the audio paul shot all the picture and mm -hmm. put the whole thing together of course he's the director and um james mole was the executive producer and he's like one of grammy and oscar for the food fighters um documentary yeah he was the executive producer in that that movie has not been released yet no. um officially no but i after watching that footage in Pottstown, I could just I could just see Paul just going, "Oh my goodness, I wish I had this footage." Yes, because I mean the movie's good, and Paul got great footage, and it's it's, it's exhaustive, you know, as far as detail. But man, that <laughs> that footage in Pottstown was such an interesting um, uh, perspective that 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 I bet Paul would really love to have that in the film. Yeah, so. yeah. Let's see now. What uh, memorable gigs do you have? Uh, you can talk about what artists did you share the stage with back then? You mentioned a few already. Striper, oh. Daryl Mansfield Band. Yeah, I mean, we, we, Bloodgood did a lot of shows where, you know, there wasn't an opening act. No, you were the band, yeah. Them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, period. Mm -hmm. But um, um, we worked with, you know, we played with pretty much every band, everyone, you know, all the Christian bands for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, like, you know, uh, White Cross and just all the way down the list. Yeah, but here's a, here's a memorable moment. Um, I don't know. I I don't think it was the Whiskey a Go Go, but I think it was in L.A. Les Carlson would know the actual um, event. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm really horrible at remembering some of those details. <laughs> um, yeah, but I remember we were doing this show and it was a it was a bar, 
and the place was packed. Uh, it was a club, bar, whatever you want to call it. And there was probably 400 people there. But, I mean, it was packed. It's all I could hold. <laughs> and and people were going crazy, you know. We're doing this song called Anguish and Pain. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, that song has a stop, yes. right? yeah. It has it's like this rest. Yeah. And then Les comes in and he goes, Anguish and Pain. Anyway, so we're doing this song, and all the power, excuse me, mm-hmm. all the power basically cuts out in the PA. Oh, boy. But the back line, as far as the amps, are all going. Yeah. So we're going through Anguish and Pain, all of a sudden, well, the PA's out. Yeah. And But the back line's there. So we just kick into a blues song. We just start playing the blues. Mm-hmm. It's kind of heavy, heavy blues song. Yeah. And Les Carlson just jumps on the crowd and acts like he's swimming over the crowd. And they're all they're all basically holding him up, and he's acting like he's swimming. And he he swims all the way to the back end of the, of the facility, and he swims all the way over to the side. And at the very end, he gets back up to he's swimming towards the stage, and they throw him up. They literally threw him on stage, and he lands. I'm not kidding, man. He lands, and right when his feet hit, the PA turned on, and he goes, anguish, and... and then we wow. Right <laughs> oh, that is so good. We were all... Everyone in the band was surprised. I mean, the yeah. PA turns on right at that moment. We finish out the song. It's like, okay, you can't even plan this kind of stuff. There's no, no way. You know, so that was a real fun moment. Yeah. And then some of the other moments, like, um, you know, I mean... I got to play on a worship team, uh, um, you know, probably for about 15 years at mm-hmm. Grace Chapel in Leaper's Fork in Tennessee. Yeah. And um, I re- people say, what's one of your favorite things to do in playing song, music and this sort of thing? And I said, well, it was worship. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was really extraordinary because there were times that it, it was something bigger than me was happening. Yeah. And I'd be playing things, I'm going, okay, I, I, this is, you know, this is bigger than me. I, I, I would never come up with this or come up with that. And just emotionally and spiritually, it really was very moving. Yeah. But one time, two times, I guess two people that I re- was really surprising that I got to, you know, play with and work with was um, Allison Krauss mm-hmm. and then also uh, Michael McDonald. Right on. And Yeah, and so they played at our church, and so since I was on the worship team, I got to, you know, perform with them and all that stuff, and it it was a fantastic worship team. Beautiful, wow. One of the best players in the world, you know? Yeah, I love them. And I remember um, Allison was great. She's very gentle, very kind, Mm -hmm. and she's incredibly talented. You know, she's off the the map, you know. Um, But Michael McDonald, growing up, I was really into the Doobie Brothers, but I liked the original singer. I liked the original music. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I don't know if I liked his voice that much, blah, blah, blah. Dude, when I performed with him and he was singing, he was extraordinary. I go, oh, my goodness, this guy is the best in the world. I mean, yeah. who sings like this? Yeah. You know. So, I mean, that was really, it was so different working with him and hearing him live and playing with him than, than his recordings. It just, yeah. was not even the same. It was just not even the same. Allison was different. Allison her recordings and her performances, they're just intertwined and yeah. always loves her. But Michael was a little different, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's almost like he's never been captured in a recording, not like, at least not that I heard like that night, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, here's a good question for you, I would I would assume. What do you prefer, live or studio work? Oh, uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, <clears throat> I don't play live as much anymore. Right. Um and I'm not on a worship team right now, um, which I, I would like to jump on a worship team at some yeah, point. Yeah, uh, me too. Again. <laughs> I know. But, feeling, um, yeah. So I, I guess to answer that question, um, my I don't know that I have a preference. It's more along the lines of 
what am I doing? Mm -hmm. So if I'm playing live, like um, recently, well, not recently, a couple years back, I played with Don Cromwell, Les Carlson. I can't remember the drummer's name. He uh, he just met him. Mm -hmm. Don Cromwell was um, the bass player for for Air Supply. Okay. Yeah, and, and Les and him did a record together. So it was basically the... Um, Carlson and Cromwell, or Cromwell and Carlson, I, I can't remember which way it That's was. the one, I think it's, uh, yeah, it really, yeah. It was a, a really cool record, and so playing that, I got to play my baritone, my Gretsch, and, you know, so that was a lot of fun. We did that, um, I think it was on Babridge Island in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Really fun gig, this sort of thing. Um, so I, I love doing that. Now, the studio is quite different, because the studio is more tedious, there's a lot of time that has to go into it, um, uh, it's an art to being able to record in a certain fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, today's, I mean, I when I started recording, I was you know doing it on two inch tape, you know, sixteen tracks or twenty four track two inch, and you didn't like something, you pull out a razor blade and you edited the tape with a razor yeah. blade. Yeah. Now we all have now we have Pro Tools. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> so it's a, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. So it's evolved, and I've been part of that evolution from you know my mm. whole life. Yeah. Most of my life. And so I guess I'd, I'd say I'd give it a 50-50. I mean, I do like playing and performing live because that's great. I don't do it as much. Yeah. Um, just because of maybe opportunity. Studio, I'm doing it all the time still. Yes. So which is great. Mixing and, mas- and mastering and all that stuff. And um, and producing still a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I do enjoy the studio. It's, it's uh, something I, I really have learned to love and, and grow with. So, yeah. 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 So going back a bit... Um, you left Bloodgood and went solo. Uh, what's the story behind that? Why did you leave Bloodgood? Well, um, hmm, that's a tough one to answer. There's no real answer, even... probably, is there? Just you just no, did... there is an answer. Is there? Okay, definitely an answer. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Bloodgood was touring. We had finished up the Detonation tour, and we also had finished up a um, couple of European tours. We went to I went to Europe four times. I think I think I'm not, I think I'm not mistaken. It's four times. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was all good, and I love performing with the band. And Michael and Les and I still yeah, to this day are still very close. Yeah. Um, uh, but here's the thing: when we went on the Detonation tour, we took our wives and our kids with us, mm-hmm. and which is great. We homeschooled Saray, and and then so by the time I was leaving Bloodgood, Silas, my son, was born, and he was waking up, you know, basically in a flight case at two in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just it was such a different thing for a toddler yeah. to be on the road and that sort of thing. And so <clears throat> that was difficult. But so I, we made the decision that Susan and the kids would stay at home, mm-hmm. and then I would just tour. Yeah. But that brought up that brought different difficulties, you yeah. know, that, into the equation because we had never had that in our whole marriage, or you know. Yeah. And so sure. I just said, you know what? I I just can't I can't be on the road with you guys anymore. Yeah. It's just too hard on my family. So I'm I'm, I'm going to have to. And I know Blood Good Tours a lot, so I know this is going to place me out of the band. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny. So I, I quit the band for that reason. And then the funny thing is, is that Blood Good at that point didn't really tour for about, I don't know, a year or two Ooh. years or something. Okay. They, they took a, So the very reason I was, couldn't be in the band is it wasn't even an, an issue, but yeah. it, it just worked out that way. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, yeah. And then the solo record thing, I was, I was always just working on music and, um, Mike McLean, the A and R um, at Frontline, got a hold of my music and really liked it, and turned Jimmy Kentner onto it. And mm-hmm. basically, Jimmy eventually just says, "Hey, you, you know, you want to do a record?" You know, mm-hmm. so I did. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have to tell you, the first time I listened to that, I went, "Hold on a minute, 
he was backup singer for Blood Good. I was so impressed, and it's your albums are just amazing, wonderful. We love them on the station, and uh, both Mr. Bill and I agree. Uh, where were you hiding? But uh, like I talked to Michael, and everyone in the band could sing, so you probably could all have had solo albums as well as the band together. Anyways, you're that talented, so <clears throat> that's a wonderful God-given gift that you have. Um, oh, thank you, thank really you. Yeah, good. the 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 vocals on the first my first solo record, doing those vocals, were so difficult. I bet, eh? I mean, because I didn't realize how hard it would be and how pitchy I was. I was really pitchy, so I had to really work at this thing. Yeah. And I kind of got scared. Yeah. I thought, oh my goodness, I, I, am I going to be able to do this record? You yeah, know, yeah. eventually, Maverick uh, actually co-produced that record with me. I was working on that, that record, and I remember uh, I worked really hard on this one take. Mm -hmm. I mean, I worked so hard on it. Yeah, and um, and then Charles, the engineer, by accident punched in again and erased it. Oh, I'm no. like, you erased that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and and then Maverick took the talk back. He goes, it wasn't that good. Do it again. <laughs> 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 well, but uh, yeah, those that that was a very difficult record. But the cool thing is, after I had done that first record, yeah, um, I, it was easier for me to accomplish vocals on the on the next record. Yeah, um, except for under absolute i had some really serious allergy issues and my throat was going out and i just was a mess on that record yeah um based on allergies yeah but um but yeah th thank you for the, the compliment no, though it's it absolutely it was a hard one so when you find yourself pitchy what do you do try to go higher like is that where we got some of the great uh, high-end uh singing because you maybe had to go up there or do we have um no i just i, I think it's like if i'm pitchy um Back in back then, when I was pitchy, I'd go through like me, me, ma, mo, mu, or yeah. you know, la, 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 la. I just go through my scales and just yeah. get my intervals, yeah. and that would actually help me when I'm singing because mm -hmm. I just wasn't that experienced. I mean, Les Carlson yeah. is a fantastic. You got him singing. Okay? You, yeah, you you could even hit a bad note you, we wouldn't have heard because he's so good, right? Right, right, and he's still he's still that way today. I mean, he's the guy's amazing. older than me, yeah. You know, and he's still very, very good. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And he taught me a lot. I yeah. mean, Les taught me a lot about singing. But start some of the actual nuts and bolts and um, control issues and stuff. I just wasn't where he was at. So yeah. it was easy for me to throw my blow my voice out. Um, yeah. Whereas Les was so trained that I don't think that's ever happened. No. I don't think he's ever blown his voice out. Probably never. But I did. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see now. Who else have you worked with in studio? Like, have you been produced other uh, bands or, or singers in the last little while? Oh well, <clears> I mean, <throat> uh, let me go back a little bit. I mean, sure. When I um, um when Daryl Mansfield had finished the first record, yeah. Um, I thought to myself, I want to do what he does. I want to be a producer. I like this. this yeah. Is cool. Yeah. So um, I went home after that record, and I found a couple of bands. Um, and one was called The Reach, and I produced mm -hmm. their demos. Yeah. And Zion produced their demo. Right. And both of those, um, both of those got a record deal with Dorn Reppert. And then, um, and Reach went on after that record deal to sign with uh, Des Dickerson at Starsaw. Mm -hmm. Um, so both of those records, those demos got, you know, record deals. And then, interestingly enough, um, Zion went on to, getting one of their songs on 12 New Faces, which was off of Murr. Right. Mark Maxwell was the A&R. Yeah. And it's, the song was called Is It a Crime? Mm -hmm. So 
which was a great, great plus. It was like, wow, this is cool. Getting all this exposure. Sorry, I probably sound winded walking up the stairs. It's quite all right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. so, but after that, Mark Maxwell was signing a band, and he wanted to um, consider me to produce it. It was a metal band, mm -hmm. and it was between me and another individual to produce the band. Yeah. And um, so I walked into the meeting, and I had listened to their music. I flew down from uh, Washington to uh, California. And... Um, LA and basically meet with these guys and I listened to all their stuff and I went into the meeting and I said if I produce this we have to get rid of every song you have mm. none of them are good enough for this record yeah and I said they're just not good enough guys and this is your debut record it's got to be fantastic wow and nobody and I said so that me <laughs> have me lose the gig but I'm telling you that's what really needs to happen yeah and we have to do pre-production for weeks and we have to get you guys ready for the studio that's going to take some serious time mm -hmm. and energy because you can't just walk into the studio no and um so that band was uh holy soldier oh and oh. yeah 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 and 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 interestingly enough all of them really embraced that idea of just dumping all the music because they didn't like it either no. i mean they liked some of the things but they could never agree completely on what you know they were just really disconnected yeah so i kind of became the glue in that band terrific um as a producer and working with them and oddly enough the other producer they were considering using was uh michael sweet from striper right so um so that was kind of well, between him up. and I. Beat him I, didn't out. Know, I didn't know that until after. I didn't know that until after, but uh, yeah. So you were the fifth um, so soldier, got, really. <laughs> well, and, and people used to get on me and say, "Hey, man, those guys can they even really play?" And da 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 da. Did you end up playing everything? I'm like, no, <laughs> no. I did not play. I, there's one on the first record. There's one guitar solo that I did. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, but everything else, Michael's a fantastic guitar player. Yes. Jamie's really good. I mean, all those guys are great. Yes. Andy's a great bass player. Terry's a fantastic drummer. I mean, yeah. so when people would say that, you know, like, you guys are doing it. Hmm. They really played that stuff. You mean, maybe you're jealous or I don't know what your motive is here, but <laughs> they really did do it, guys. Yeah. You know, so that was really cool. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so working with Holy Soldier, working with Inreach, but then over the years, um, Eventually, I moved from Seattle to Nashville and um, ended up working on... Nashville's interesting because yeah. when I got to Nashville, I was a you know, really small fish in a huge pond. Mm -hmm. Michael Martian is going to my church yeah. and moving chairs. Yeah. Okay? Michael Martian is a <laughs> world-renowned producer. Yep. You know, Big time. He's worked with Rod, you know, everyone, Amy Grant and yeah. Rod. And and, uh, and I think, oh boy, I'm, I'm probably in over my head here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so... But everyone pinned me as, okay, you're the rock metal guy. Yeah. So that's what I was. Okay, I produced rock and metal. And then all of a sudden, I worked with this artist by the name of Eli. It was very acoustic-driven. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, okay, now I'm the acoustic guy. Yeah. You know, the, the Americana, earthy, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> Christian Americana. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I was like, okay. And then I ended up producing, like, Kim Hill and um, mm -hmm. um, Passion yeah. um, with Louis Giglio, um, the 268 generation, and then Better Is One Day. And then, oh, okay, now I'm the live guy. Yeah. So I was doing all these live guys. <laughs> they always want to put you in this little in a box. little box, you know? yeah. Yeah. So, but being able to do that was uh, was a great honor, and, and you know, I got to produce a lot of artists. Everyone from Eli to Point of Grace to you know all kinds of people. Wow. And the interesting thing is, like, I, yeah, I got to work on the Point of Grace record with um, Wayne Kirkpatrick. He did half the record. I did the other half. Yeah. And uh, uh, there was another producer too. His, mind, his name's not coming to mind right now. I mm -hmm. feel like an idiot. Sorry. Sorry. But anyway, yeah. um, um, what's his name? Anyway, um, uh. 
during those 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 years, um, a lot on the live records, and then even on Eli and the acoustic stuff, I was started to get into mixing mm-hmm. more and more and more. So I mix, you know, and because um, I was as a producer, my strength was in composition. Yeah, uh, you know, I had a, I was a writer for a staff writer for EMI. You know, I'm a writer. You know, yeah. So engineering was really not as much of my thing, but over the years, it just kind of got that way that I was doing more and more of it. So I got to where I was mixing. So um, at the end of uh, Point of Grace record, Wayne came up to me and said, Wayne Kirkpatrick, he says, hey, I'm doing a custom project right now, um, but I think it's going to get some traction. I'm hoping it will get signed. Um, I can't pay you your rate, but I will pay you the balance of it if it does get picked up, but I can pay you this much, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Did you do it for this price? And I could pay the difference if it, you know, yeah. it's picked up. Yeah. I said, sure. I said, I'd love to. You <laughs> sure. know? Wayne is Wayne Kirkpatrick is extremely talented. Yeah. Man. yeah. That guy is just, you know. Yeah. Um, he's, he did the something rotten, you know, that play. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So he's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that band that I mixed and it, it did get picked up, but it went on Clint Black's um, label, which was called Equity at the time. Yeah. That was Little Big Town. Oh. So I got to I got to mix the first little big town record and then then after that one went platinum because it went platinum which freaked out Equity yeah. they were not prepared for a platinum record yeah they were like scrambling dude trying to get the manufacturer I mean dude platinum record for a small label like that out of the shoot is not no, an easy task that's pretty good <laughs> so so but they, it went platinum and then eventually <clears throat> um, they cut a deal and sold it to Capital and then so I ended up mixing the second record which was on Capital yeah. And uh, so that was really good. And those guys, little big town. I mean, yes, they're, big. they're really that good. <laughs> they're, they're good. They're, yeah. they're, I mean, you know, you don't go in the studio and tune them up. You don't no, have to tune no. Them up. I mean, they're just they're killer. <laughs> yeah. You know. So and then then that went into all kinds of stuff. Um, I started mixing for Warner Brothers, and I was you know mm-hmm. worked with Trent Kings County, and then I was working with the band Perry. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, of course. Nine years. Yeah, yeah. So I got to mix some sides on that with um, Phil Madera and Lynn Nichols. Mm. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot of opportunities. It's weird because in, by 2013, though, mm. 2008, everything changed, right? Yeah. By the time 2013 is coming around, music is pretty much free. Spotify, Pandora, YouTube. I mean, music is free now. Yeah. You want to hear something? Yeah. You don't have to pay for it anymore. No. Well, that has its toll on the record budget. It sure and all does. So it was getting harder and harder to make an income. And Susan and I were talking about maybe taking care of her parents. So. I said, let's just sell the house, move to Vegas, and take care of your parents. Yeah. So we did that for a year. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we moved to L.A. And um, we stayed in L.A. for about two years. And I got to work on that film, Trenches, mm-hmm. and did some other stuff. Worked with Fed Paragano. Um, he was my mentor. Yeah. And, and film is so different. It's just so different than doing a record. Yeah. And he was working on the TV show Nashville. Right. And, you know, so all these things were happening in, in L.A. And then eventually after that, we finally decided to move back to Seattle, just kind of move home. Yeah. And we did. And we bought a house up um, in, in Everett and um, beautiful home. I had a be- beautiful uh, view of Mount Baker. Nice area. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but then, then my daughter, um, and this is our first, she gets pregnant and has a child. Oh. And so now we're grandparents. And we went out to the delivery. She lives in tennessee mm-hmm. and well after the delivery susan my wife looked at me and says we gotta move back oh of course you do <laughs> so we moved, we, moved, <laughs> we moved five times in five years it was crazy oh. um the, the the fifth one being here now in Greenbrier, but when we moved back to nashville it was east nashville yeah we were renting for a little bit before we purchased 
Yeah. And um, so now I'm back. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I know that's a very long-winded answer. I'm that's so sorry. terrific. No, much. that's great. Great stuff. Yeah, so I've had some opportunity to work with some really great people. I've been very, very honored. No, oh, that's awesome. God's good. Um, so what I was going to ask you now, too, um, favorite songs to play? To you, you've named a few along the way here. Do you have any absolute favorites that you just love to play? Mm. You haven't played in a while, so that may be hard. Any ones no, that, I play all the time. Yeah, anyone in the, the yeah. Well, any songs that came up in the set list? Wow, good. This one's up now. Oh, um, here's a funny answer. My favorite song to play is the one I'm working on now. Okay. You know, whatever that happens to be. If I just wrote a song, that's my favorite one to play right now. Yeah. Right now, I'm working on this thing for uh, NASCAR. We'll see if it happens. Oh. It's for NASCAR. It's a promotion, a uh, 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 marketing campaign. Yeah. For for their you know their shows and their events and and um, it's this basically instrumental stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of they call it instead of hip hop, they call it hip hop. <laughs> That's, I'm not kidding. That's what they call it, tick hop. And so I'm doing these tick hops. They're kind of country-ish, yeah. um, um, but they got like 808 kicks mm-hmm. and that kind of urban, you know, thing to it. So it's kind of tick hop. I like it. And I really enjoy doing that. I so I mean, just that answer would be, yeah, my favorite song is these songs right now because I'm enjoying playing them. Terrific. As far as the set list, um, like back in the day with Bloodgate, I always, I always really enjoyed playing uh, Never Be the Same. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorite songs to play. It was just fun. Yeah. Uh, I think playing Crucify from a theatrical standpoint was always so interesting because, you know, Les would be Pilot and then he'd be Jesus and then we're whipping him with our guitars. Yeah. Intense. You know, and um, so I, I always enjoyed doing that too because it was just so intense mm-hmm. and, um, and out of out of the ordinary, I guess, extraordinary, uh, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, that, that's probably my answer to, to that question, I guess. Yeah. yeah. My favorite probably is Seven. That's probably my favorite Blood Good song, Seven. And, mm-hmm. and Never Be the yeah. Same is great, too. <clears throat> and I think um, what fo- what's following the grave? I, I hear Daryl through that one for some reason. How much influence do you have in that song? I just hear, I actually hear him singing that as well. I was surprised he never, yeah. he never did cover it later because he, he used to do that all the time pick up a song from another band and, and cover it for himself. Yeah, I um, uh, that song, Daryl didn't have any, I mean, well. He, Maybe the bluesy feel wait, to is that, it? Wait, is it Following the Grave, is that on the first record or the second one? What's Following the Grave? It's on the first one. No, yeah, it's on the first one. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, okay, what's sorry following, about that. it's on side well, two. It has, been, it has been a while. Side two for those who have vinyl. Yeah, so it's on here. It's falling the grave right after, right before killing the beast and black snake. There you go. <laughs> okay, so so okay, so that song, as far as Daryl's input, I mean, comes from the angle of like I, a lot of those guitar tracks were tracked with a bass amp. Yeah, um, um, a basement. So it was an old fifty-seven, fifty-eight, three, four, ten basement. Mm-hmm. And you can crank those things up and they'll break up in a really cool way on guitar. So Daryl really has all these old vintage amps and yes. he wanted me to use those on the recording and I'm like, Great, let's do it, you know. <laughs> Good. So yeah. that was his influence, I think, there. Yeah. Some of some of the stuff, don't get me wrong, uh, he would arrange a song a little bit, but on that one I think it was pretty much mapped out. Yeah. So we yeah. just basically played through it. Yeah. And then um and then he would coach us on you know, layering the back vocals and this sort of thing. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, and that it's interesting because that particular song, 
by the way, I don't I don't think I've ever heard Paul Jackson play it. I'm sure he has. Yeah. But um, but I just that's just not one that they play very often. Mm-hmm. Bloodgood didn't after I left, I think. Yeah. And um, yeah. that particular approach to picking it. Because it goes so every string is going da 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 da. So instead of going da 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 da, it's going so you're double picking this chord and each note is almost like an appagiated performance, but you're double picking it. And I got that technique from Bill Hale, the guy that I played with, the Bill and Blind Alice. Yeah. So I mean, I he didn't write the song, of course. But that particular approach to picking it that way really um, came from him. Wow. And so I, I guess I borrowed that creative, you know. I wouldn't call it, you know, plagiarizing at that no, point no. because it was it was more along the lines of a technique. And, Influence. I mean, I mean, at that point, yeah. you know, everyone's stealing from Eddie Van Halen. That's right. Do tap, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that kind of thing. So, uh, and the, so Bill Hill, was, uh, he, was, he was the force behind that for me. Um, but I wrote the song years after I not you know years after working with Bill years. Yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. Uh, if you hadn't been a musician, uh, what else would you have done? And uh, would you? Uh, in hindsight, now if I had my way, I'm, I mean, I'm I've been writing a book forever. I'm, I've really hit the wall on the, some parts of it, but yeah, um, I'm feeling pretty excited about it. Um, but maybe because um, it's. I've never been a writer, um, like you know, writing a novel. Yeah. But uh, my dad was a very good writer, mm-hmm. and um, and I, maybe I got something from him or something because I'm really enjoying it. People um, that have heard this, um, uh, you know, because I actually recorded chapter one of one of the stories, which is called Jersey and the Saint. Yeah. So the book's about it's about my my life, mm-hmm. um, memoirs as well. Awesome. Like one of the stories is called um, it's a it's a um, a good day. Yeah. And it's about the Miss Doubtfire bankrupt. Oh, um, yeah. It's so a, a woman that dressed as a man that dressed as a woman, yeah. kind of a double spin, and she um, was um, charged with r- robbing eleven banks in um, in basically the Kent, Washington area. Mm-hmm. And that's my that's my sister, yeah. Chris. Oh wow. Yeah. So so that I'm writing. Uh, that's one of the stories. So these are all these wow. different stories in my life. Yeah. So yeah. we call an autobiography or memoir. Yeah. But the other thing is. Um, and so I did on Jersey and Saint. There's another story about uh, one of my other sisters, and uh, pretty intense. Yeah. Um, don't even know if I want to go on, um, go into it on the air no, or anything no. like that. But yeah. I have uh, chapter one. I, I I'm probably at uh, chapter twenty three chapters right now. I got a couple more, mm-hmm. and I can't finish it until I, until I fly to uh, to uh, California um, to go to the um, to a seminary yeah. where um, Scott Peck and go through his archives because there's some information I don't have to finish the story. Okay. He, he would know about, uh, he's, he has passed. Um, yeah. but, um, Pasadena is where the, uh, mm-hmm. seminary is Fullerton seminary. We'll keep your eyes and, out for, um, that for sure. Yeah. Right. But so I, I, um, I did chapter one as audio. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'm going to see what it sounds like. So I just recorded it and just read, read the book straight into a nice microphone, recorded it. Yeah. And so I've sent that out to a few of my close friends and they're like, dude, yeah, they were, they were, they were pretty happy with it. So, mm-hmm. so, but to answer the question, maybe, maybe I could have been a writer. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, the thing that comes to mind that I've always been interested in and would be to be a, a detective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I could do it all over again, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the, 
to be like a, a detective in regards to like a, you know homicide or something yeah, like that. That'd be fun. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> but you know, you always You'll, think about something like that. You always do. Yeah, you always think of what else could I have done. But then other people tell you we're glad you didn't and glad you did what you did. So there, you, there you go. Right. You know, right. that's awesome. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit. You're you've been remastering uh, the albums, some albums lately, and some that have, are done. Um, what's the story behind that? I mean, we get re-releases from time to time. Uh, what's different about these? How many? There's two or three Blood Good albums you've just remastered and are put out. Is that right? Yeah, there's a couple of things. There's one mm. that I did, which was for the soundtrack of Trenches. That's why, yeah, of course. And yes. uh, that's not that's not really out yet. I think they're going to release that in in um, tandem with the movie. Okay. I use that word that way. Makes sense. Yeah. But um, um, but um, and then I I didn't remaster the um, first record. No. Blood Good Record. Somebody else did that. That's, yeah. That, that's not my work. That's the confusion. But I did part. do yep. um, Detonation. That's the one. And yep. And here's the thing. Mastering is um, something that I've been doing for probably the last, I don't know, five years. Yeah. Um, I got into it when we lived in Vegas and, and, and just been moving forward on it. And I mastered for different labels and just whatever. Here's here's the thing. Mastering is an interesting thing because a lot of people are doing it in the box. And what that means is, let's say you have a computer mm-hmm. and you got Pro Tools and you do your mastering in Pro Tools or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of holes with that. You can't really put metadata in there. Okay. So yeah. song names, titles. You can't put all that stuff in there, right. so you really gonna have to switch out to a different situation, uh, like a CD layout or whatever, or embed it into the actual wave file itself, which you can use a program called um, Pro Audio Converter, okay. and that would put the metadata in. Yeah. But when you do it all in the box, mm-hmm. that means you're not going out to an analog device; you're just doing it through the software. You can only get the songs so loud mm-hmm. and so intense because it's software, and it basically what happens is it starts to sound like bright and hashy and yeah. you lose your chicken snare, you're two and four, you start losing that stuff because you're pushing it so hard. Right. So I don't do that. I go out and I go to an analog device and I push it and I come back in and I push the converters. So if you can push the converters, it's free volume. Mm-hmm. So that's, so then it gets up to zero, but there's no limiting. Okay. I mean, I still do a little bit of limiting, but I don't have to do nearly as much as someone who's doing it in the box. Mm-hmm. People would come back and go, how did you get this to sound like this? Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm not doing it in the box. No. And if you listen, if you go look at people like Emily Lazar or Bob Ludwig, or these, they, they don't do it in the box. Mm. The best mastering engineers in this country are not doing it in the box. Really? And that should say something. Yeah. But it's the ugly, dark secret that nobody wants to tell you about pushing <clears throat> the converters. Yeah. But bottom line is if you have good converters and they're not cheap, um, then you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's why some people mastering sound really good, and other people's like, Ugh, what's wrong with this? Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> so is, right. has our technology just gotten that much better that we can do better what we didn't do the first time? Or is it, in some cases, it's for albums that are no longer available, so while you're at it, you may as well remaster it. Right. Mm. I mean, you know, both all of, all of the above, yeah. I would say, but but bear in mind, um, yeah, we have a lot more technology. Yeah. But if you're going out to an analog device, that kind of is old school. Yes, really. So that in that regard, that's it's it's the best of both worlds. It's that mm-hmm. perfect match of digital and analog. Yeah. You know, analog working with digital is a is a nice expression. It's pretty great. Yeah. But uh, it's being abandoned now because all these plugins you can do it all you know digitally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's there's a bit of a cost with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to you know do both. Um, 
I, I don't try, I just do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that being said, this whole thing with um, with digital, and uh, I mean, you've got, and, and digital meaning um, your DAW, Pro Tools, Slash, um, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, music's free, yeah. budgets are less. Mm-hmm. Young guys are coming in doing records for like, oh, I'll do it for $1,000 mm-hmm. a song. Yeah. You know, so they do they do a full record for $10,000. Mm-hmm. They mix the whole thing. And the problem is, it doesn't sound good. Yeah. And so I've got people, I mean, I've had labels of recent, like I recently mixed, um, I don't know if you know him, his name is, um, um, well, the producer was Jeremy Latito. Mm-hmm. And I got to work with a couple different artists that he was working on, mm-hmm. but one of them was called um, "Striking Matches." Okay. And um, I did that. I did that mixing, and um, and I didn't master that. Um, um, and that went on uh, Grey's Anatomy. Okay. Um, it was, it was a season five premiere um, episode, whatever first episode. Um, so it was really fun hearing my mix on TV. Yeah. I'm like, hey, I get to hear my mix on TV. This is fun. <laughs> you know, that has that doesn't happen too often. No. And then the other one was a, a guy by the name of, um, um, what's his name? I can't believe it. I'm drawing a blank. Let me just look it up real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in my studio. Yeah. Uh, Talk amongst yourselves, everybody. <laughs> dude, I can't believe I, um Oh, yeah. Devin Gefillion. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he's really talented. And that was for uh, um, Capitol Records, the pop, pop artist. Yeah. Um, and I, mixing that. And so... That for me, I had I reached out to Capital and we had a conversation about this sort of thing and and I was talking to another producer and he said, David, there are so many records that are coming on that someone's recorded on their laptop and they need a really good mixing engineer to fix mm-hmm. it. He goes, you need to reach out to the, the major labels and just you know, yeah, represent yourself in that fashion. So I did, <laughs> yeah. and I got some of those things. Yeah. So that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing yeah. with these. 20 something year olds that are doing everything on their laptop and it doesn't sound no, good. No. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there's exceptions mm-hmm. to those. Yeah. I mean, I know there's there's some good stuff out there too, but <clears throat> more that more often than not now, you've got this substandard recording and it's got to be mixed like really well, or else you're going to have a train wreck. Yeah. And the labels, the record labels know this. Yeah, using GarageBand so, so that, or something. I don't know if that right? that's a long, <laughs> it's a bit of a long winded answer for that, but yeah. that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. Um,. I was going to ask you then too. So, any do you have any advice for young musicians? It looks like a whole different world now. Uh, like you say, they can sit in their room. I could sit here with a guitar and record something now too, uh, and send it out. What advice would you give uh, musicians today, young musicians starting out? I think uh, mainly the main advice I would give is to be interactive, mm-hmm. work with other musicians, yeah. write, co-write. Don't worry about who owns what. You know, you know, if you're writing with somebody, split it fifty-fifty. Who cares? Trash the ego, right? You know, yep. um, no egos. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, lose the ego, and, and 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 look at people like you know, Paul McCartney. Yeah, I mean, best best work he ever did was with John Lennon. Yeah, you know, so so there's that interaction. I would encourage. I mean, look at uh, like even Elton John, yes. a friend of mine, um, Joe Ciccarelli got to work with Elton John and um, mixed his stuff, and I was asking him about that, and um. And he said Elton went into the studio and and huh. and basically was just sitting at the piano, and he's flipping through pages of Bernie Taupin's lyrics. Yeah. And he's he would play and he'd like play around with this thing and sing this thing like eh, and he'd flip it to another. And then after a while, he all of a sudden something would happen. Yeah. 
they dig in like oh, okay we've got something here mm-hmm. and right about then the drummer would kind of walk in the bass player would walk in and they'd all just interact with each other and they'd have these great songs and joe's rolling tape all the time yes i mean it's just, it's helping job to find yes. out about yeah it. I know. could you imagine he goes oh i think that was really good how's it sound he goes oh i didn't record it well oh, you're fired <laughs> you're fully fired the tapes oh, rolling. i didn't know we were recording you know yeah so you're always rolling tape yeah you know? and uh um but that interaction, you know, yeah. so, and Elton had that with his players, but also in an interestingly bizarre way with Bernie in two separate rooms. I yeah. mean, they would literally write the song in two separate rooms. So there's yeah. that kind of the juxtaposition in that regard, if, if that's the right word to use, yeah. you know, because it's just so different. Um, but that interaction with other musicians is going to make you smarter. Yeah. It's going to challenge you. Mm-hmm. I mean, what if they come up with this really good chorus? You're like, oh, man, I better write a good verse, man. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing to have. Very. So I would say as, as young musicians, um, you know, don't be afraid to get out there and um, get get your hands dirty. That's right. That's right. So do we have any of your soul albums to look forward to being remastered or re-released? I'm not sure of the availability. I obviously have a couple <laughs> of them here. Um, are, they, yeah. are they available anywhere? Are they out of print? I think I think they're out of print. Yeah. You can get them. Yeah. I think you can still. Well, maybe Adele. I, I'm not really sure. Adele runs the front line uh, yeah. roster and that sort of yeah. thing. And I, I'm not really sure if they're technically out, out of print or not. Yeah. But I mean, I would imagine they I are. Always find them um, somewhere, right? So, yeah, and, and just so we're clear, I, I do not like the mixes on those songs. That's why I'm, at yeah, all. I'm asking that for a reason. Thinking you must uh, go back and think, I could remix this or remaster some of these. Yeah, give that any thought. But, well, the masters are, are non. I mean, they're gone. they're gone. The actual multi-track masters are not there anymore. Oh, wow. um, they were stored in um, front line, stored them in the warehouse, and they all disintegrated. Oh boy! Same with like 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 one of the things I would love to remix would be Rock at a Hard. Yeah, I would love to mix that. Record. Yeah, I've got that right in um, front of me but, here. Yeah, but the budgets that I had on the solo stuff like that. I mean, the first record had real drums, but some of it, most uh, two, three, and four were. A lot of programs. I noticed, like yeah, that. And, yeah, I noticed. Yeah, and 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 the mixes are what they were. I mean, I, I didn't know I, some of them I mixed, and I was not a mixing engineer back then, not even in this, <laughs> not, not even, the, yeah. not even close. Yeah, okay, yeah. and so now I listen to it, and I go, oh my goodness, really, seriously? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I've never been happy with that, but you know what? It doesn't really matter. No, I mean, you're doing what you love now, because right? It, yeah, I mean, if, if someone went back, I mean, I, John Lennon was quoted to, to liking only two songs that he ever recorded yeah you know yeah. a day in a life and um uh, my life mm-hmm. you know my life i love you more. that's you a, know, oh yeah you know, they, yeah he like you know those are the only two that he really likes so i mean yeah welcome to the club you know? yeah exactly um yeah and and some of the stuff that we did on the first record on um, mixing that thing we were literally running virtual tracks of keyboards via MIDI, and they were all going down to the mix at the same time. So they were, we didn't have enough tracks to put those on there, so we had to do it virtual mm-hmm. before virtual was even popular. Yeah. So, I mean, I couldn't get those sounds again because, no. I mean, all that stuff's gone. Yeah. I'm like, gone, It's too bad. Have you got any final thoughts or words for us? Hmm. It's always the tough one at well, the I end. I don't know. You've said a lot, so, yeah, you know. I, yeah, I've probably said a lot. I, you know, I guess final thoughts, in words, I guess for me would be maybe in regards to my faith. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, just that that place of um, you, know, you get older, you get more comfortable. I'm a grandfather now, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. 
and I'm thinking about where the world is and mm. all the political correctness and all the division yeah. and the polarization. Yeah. It's extraordinary. I don't think I've ever, I mean, I don't think we've ever been here before. No. And I think that um, just to keep that faith in God, mm. and for me right now, that's that's tough, yeah. you know? I mean, not that, not, that, not that I don't believe, I'm not saying that, but that faith of just walking with Him yeah. and praying with Him and and just being active, yeah. um, it's easy to yeah. lighten up on that, yeah. and it, and that's not a good thing. Yeah. If you start to lighten up on those things, it can, it can, um, you know. Yeah. And Susan and I, through the traveling, we like I said, we moved five times in five years. We visited some churches in um, in that like in Vegas. I didn't really care for Vegas very much. <laughs> it was just oh, there was just so much stuff. Yeah. There was so much stuff. Yeah. The whole skyline is a bunch of hotels yeah. and strip clubs. I mean, yeah. really, yeah. I just didn't dig it. No. It just wasn't my thing. Yeah. Love California, yeah. um, but we never really found a church to get rooted into. So we'd visit and be like, oh, and we've always been in, you know, when we first started going to Calvary, there was like, I don't know, 30 people. Mm -hmm. By the time we left, there was probably 3,000 people wow, for all I know. Great. And then we go, and then we moved to Tennessee and we go to a church called New Song. Mm -hmm. Again, it was in Dave Scott, excuse me, Dave Williamson's house mm -hmm. and um, Pastor Dale was uh, ever uh, ever and it was like you know 20 people yeah. by the time we left that that church and we we're there for about three mm -hmm. years um it was probably about three thousand again and then the next church we went to which was grace chapel or leaper's fork and we went there for 15 years 16 17 years or something yeah. and we again there was only like 30 people when we left there there was like five thousand wow. and we, you know and so we'd always we'd always been very rooted in the church. So to mm -hmm. be traveling and moving so many times and not having that was really, you know, very difficult. Um, uh, and then we, when we got back to Seattle, mm -hmm. we went to Wayne Taylor's church for a while, but we had changed so much that that didn't feel the same either. Yeah. So it was just kind of bizarre. Now now we're out in Greenbrier thinking, okay, we've we got to find a, have a church. So all that to say. Um, it is so important to have that fellowship and to be um, in that community, if you will, yeah. not for what you can get, but also for what you can really get. That's right. And um, and so so yeah, just I guess just keep moving forward and 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 keeping the faith and that sort of thing. And for me, I say, oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, it's hard, not easy, yeah. you know. And it's really not up to me. It's really up to that's God. Right. He's the author and the professor. Of faith, Amen. You know. So um, you know, I, I say all this. Uh, of being worried that I'm a hypocrite. You no, know? no, we're, we're <laughs> I'm not perfect. We're not. I'm we're we're not human. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you so much, David. Um, awesome. Just terrific. And you, um, God bless you. And uh, this has been Time Machine Show. And uh, David Safiro has been our guest. And we hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs>